It's prima facie absurd that a venture capital fund would buy these tokens, which have no revenue stream attached to them, no rights whatsoever attached to them, et cetera, and that are styled as ultimately becoming a consumer good. It's prima facie absurd that they would buy those as a long-term investment rather than to flip them very quickly in the secondary market, because that's just not the kind of thing venture capital funds do. Hi, everyone. I'm Coindesk reporter Anna Baidakova, and I'm speaking today with two legal experts, Philip Mustakis, a counsel with the law firm Seward & Kiesel. He also previously worked at the SEC, and Gabriel Shapiro, who has just recently joined Belcher, Smolin & Van Wu, which is also read like BSV Law, as a partner. Congratulations, Gabriel. And uh, you might also be following him on Twitter as LexNode. Thank you for being here, gentlemen. We are talking today about one very particular case, Telegram and its court battle with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. It's been a big case. Lawyers in the blockchain space have been following it closely. Two major trade groups, the Chamber of Digital Commerce and the Blockchain Association expressed their support for Telegram. And it looks like the final decision on this case, when it's made, will have implications for the entire industry. On March 24th, the New York Southern District Court Judge Kevin Castle agreed with the SEC lawsuit and prohibited Telegram from issuing and distributed the tokens for its tone blockchain. And first of all, I think I'd like to hear your perspective of this, uh, Philip, as you used to be with the SEC Division of Enforcement. If we had to explain it to somebody totally not following the regulatory agenda, uh, why the SEC is coming after the project that raised money selling tokens, and in this particular case of Telegram, who the commission is protecting and from what? Sure. The Telegram ICO took, or the token offering, took the form that many ICOs during the 2017 and 2018 ICO craze took. And that was that it was essentially a plain vanilla capital raise. Telegram sold tokens in order to raise capital to invest in its venture, which was the development of the Tone blockchain project. During that period of the ICO craze, the chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, said publicly that just about every ICO he'd ever seen was a, constituted a securities transaction. So too did Commissioner Jackson. And the courts decision in Telegram was a pretty straightforward application of the Howey test, first promulgated by the Supreme Court in SEC v. WJ Howey and Company in 1940-something, and its progeny. So in my view, the court's decision wasn't really a surprise. You have a capital raise uh, represented by the uh, Grams, the purchasers that are to uh, obtain the Grams, their interest in the capital raise is represented by those grams, essentially like the share in a company, but rather than in a company, it's a share in the company's primary asset, which is their network or uh, the Tone blockchain. And those are the individuals that the court and the SEC in particular would be looking to protect, right? You have purchasers of the token that are investing in a blockchain project that are not getting the same kind of disclosures and protections under the federal securities laws that investors in any other project would get. 
Gabriel, you want to add anything? Do you agree with everything? Do you want to say something also about it? I agree with all that. I think that one of the interesting things about the opinion is where and as of what time does it apply the Howey test, right? Looking at this before the opinion was issued, many of us actually thought or at least wondered whether Judge Castle would have to try to apply the Howey test to secondary market transactions. Posit that one of the initial investors receives their Telegram tokens by converting the SAFT. When they resell to someone in the secondary market, is that a securities transaction? Because the new buyer is also buying for investment purposes, essentially betting on the entrepreneurial efforts of Telegram in the future. That would have been one basis on which Castell could have issued his injunction. He could have found that secondary purchasers reasonably expect profits from Telegram's future efforts, and so that that secondary market transaction is a securities transaction. However, he did not, he explicitly refused to hold on that issue uh, one way or the other, and he said that he focused solely on the initial transaction, which as Philip says, unsurprisingly, was a securities transaction. I mean, I think everyone knows it was, if the SAFs were securities, they were intended to be such. And so what may be a little bit surprising is that that's solely on the basis of that being a securities transaction. Nevertheless, an injunction was issued as to further distribution of the grams. And so from a legal point of view, I think that that is the somewhat novel thing here and probably the thing that the Second Circuit Court of Appeals will focus on, uh, you know, when Castell's uh, opinion is appealed. But the opinion is just a preliminary injunction. I agree with everything Gabriel just said, but it's just a preliminary injunction. And so I think that second question, that question about the status of the gram itself in the secondary market is not one that the court had to reach. I totally agree. The court could confine its analysis to the moment in time when investors separated from their money and base its decision on that. We still have a trial to have, and this is just to maintain the status quo until the case is resolved. And that was kind of uh, what everybody has been arguing about, right? Uh, there was two transactions in questions. One, the sale of securities, which Telegram said that the purchase agreements for the tokens, which are called grams, were a security, of course, but the grams itself were not. But the language of the court order is actually says that the security was neither the gram purchase agreement nor the gram itself, but the entire scheme that comprised the grand purchase agreements and the accompanying understandings and undertakings made by Telegram, including the expectation and intention by the initial purchasers that would distribute grams into a secondary public market. Something that, by the way, the Blockchain Association disagree with when they filed their second uh, friend of the court brief just recently. I wonder if, um, if this is, in a sense, surprising for either of you that, you know, the whole arguments that if the gram token itself is a security or not just doesn't matter because the, what is the security here is basically everything that Telegram did and intended to do regarding this token sale. Well, I think as Philip said, it's still going to matter because, you know, at some point people are going to have to figure out what the legal status of this instrument 
this token is, right? Do transactions in the secondary market in this token, are those securities transactions or are they not? Castell didn't need to reach that to issue an injunction, but that's still going to be a question that's going to have to be answered. I think part of the reason why he didn't go there and why, why it was preferable for him to rule based on the initial sale is that Telegram actually did a lot of things as part of its defense strategy to change what the reasonable expectations of a secondary purchaser could be, right? Because originally, Telegram was going to integrate the new blockchain into its app, um, and you know the the tons were going to become like the native cryptocurrency of the Telegram messaging app. And as part of their defense strategy, they started disclaiming all of that and saying that they wouldn't integrate it, et cetera. And that matters to the securities law analysis because if indeed they disclaim those things and they really mean it, uh, and people believe they mean it, then that does change whether a reasonable person in the secondary market would buy one of these tokens with the expectation that they'll achieve profits from it based on Telegram's continuing future efforts. So that, that's a more dynamic thing, and it's frankly a harder issue um, than looking at the initial sale and saying whether there was properly you know, an exemption for that securities transaction. And I agree with everything Gabriel just said, but I think that's a discussion for another day. And in my view, at least, at the free, if the grams were delivered today, they would still represent the series of promises and understanding that led up to their sale and distribution. That we don't have that sunlight between the offer and sale and the current status being somehow decentralized that would be necessary to take them out of the purview of the securities laws. That's in my view. In terms of the blockchain association and other industry groups weighing in, even if these are not the best facts uh, for the points that those industry associations would like to make, this is the game board on which the industry has to play now because this is one of several litigations bubbling up through the process. And sometimes a lawyer just has to make lemonade out of lemons, right, that you have. And these are the lemons that the industry has right now. I wonder if the situation would be different for Telegram if they first made a blockchain and then sold tokens. Do you think it would change the situation for them here? This may be a rather long-winded answer, but it's one I give quite often. And it begins with the lawyerly, it depends, right? It depends on what that blockchain is and what the tokens on that blockchain represent. Consider the often used analogy to airline miles. In theory, a startup airline could pre-sell airline miles through what we might call, say, miles purchase agreement for, say, a dollar a piece in a private exempt transaction to raise capital to start their airline. The capital could be used to um, buy planes, create software, hire personnel, establish routes, etc. Then once the airline was up and running, the pre-sold miles could be delivered to those who purchase them through the miles purchase agreements, and those miles could be used to purchase flights, on-flight entertainment, food, upgrades. The miles would just be miles. They would not represent an interest in the airline itself, like a share in the airline, and they wouldn't represent a share in the airline's planes, routes, software, etc. The miles could even be sold via a purchase agreement at a discount for 50 cents a piece, even if they'll be worth a dollar later, 
so long as upon launch, they're still just miles that have to be used or expire and are restricted for resale in any secondary market that creates the opportunity for a capital event, right? But that's not what happened here. We didn't pre-sell grams for say a dollar a piece that after the network launched and was operable would still be worth a dollar a piece and there would be an unlimited number that consumers could buy and use at a dollar a piece. What we did here was create a structure explicitly designed so that early investors would make what the court referred to as a whopping profit, dumping their pre-purchased grams onto the secondary market as soon as the network launched. It's a much different thing. What should we expect now? We are still waiting for the final court order, am I right? And what does it essentially mean for Telegram and for its investors? Telegram cannot launch its blockchain anymore at all, or if it cannot do that, does it have a chance to, like, if it does not have a chance to deliver tokens, what happens? Well, I think personally, you know, number one, we have to see how the appeal comes out, right? And one of the interesting things about the appeal is that Telegram did, you know, raise in a letter to Judge Castell after he issued the order, a lot of more jurisdictional based arguments, which presumably they'll try to re-raise at the Second Circuit. I think the Second Circuit will, again, say that they weren't fully considered in the lower court. And so it probably won't pass on those either. Uh, but we don't know that for sure. And I do think there is one sort of, you know, interesting legal question remaining, you know, that the Second Circuit, you know, we could talk about the blockchain associations, amicus brief, et cetera. But so we don't know how that's going to come out. Assuming the Second Circuit, which I, I would say is likely, uh, affirms Judge Castell's opinion, then uh, obviously at, at some point, again, people have to decide what the proper categorization of this asset is. And keep in mind, Telegram has these SAFs outstanding to these investors. Uh, it's, it's required under those SAFs to issue these tokens, and it's bought some extensions of the deadline for doing so, but the investors don't have to approve another extension. And if they don't, then Telegram might end up being in breach. And so presumably, some of those investors uh, would actually just like to get their money back from Telegram particularly because they, they probably thought this token looked like this great thing that would be integrated into the Telegram app and would have all this future upside and people would want to buy it on the secondary market. And now most likely demand for secondary market sales will be much less and they'll be much less likely to sell it at profit even if they're legally allowed to and so on. So presumably many of them would just like to get their money back and some of them might even like it if Telegram lost their case and then they could just pursue a claim for monetary damages against Telegram for a 75% refund. And that, that's one scenario that could happen. Another scenario that could happen is that Telegram, you know, after losing its, its appeal, assuming it does so, uh, could say, well, look, we, we don't want to litigate this. Uh, we need to have a resolution or we're going to get sued by a bunch of people. So what we could do is we could enter into a settlement with the SEC and we could agree that grams are securities. We could register them. Uh, we could become an SEC reporting company. And then we would be allowed to do the things that probably the SAF buyers want them to do, which is make efforts to make the token more valuable over time, right? And, and make it liquid and make it freely tradable and all those things. Um, and then it could just be like any other security, right? So that's another possible outcome. And then a third outcome is that they lose this appeal, but they keep litigating, you know, as Philip mentioned, and then we'll have a trial 
and and we'll maybe get a holding on to, as to what the nature of the tokens themselves is in the secondary market. I just feel like we need to unpack a couple of things uh, Gabriel mentioned for, for people who hasn't been following the case closely. Telegram's blockchain named Ton was scheduled to launch in late October, but pretty much right before that, the SEC sued. And so the launch was halted. And Telegram entered with, a, with an additional agreement with the investors that they allow it to reschedule the deadline for April 30th. And if the Ton blockchain is not launched by that date, they will get a um, 72% refund, 72% of what they invested. And uh, another thing that Gabriel mentioned, and which is interesting here, after the judge issued the preliminary injunction, effectively prohibiting Telegram from launching, it asked for a clarification, asking if it cannot issue token also to non-US investors, assuming that the SEC cannot have jurisdiction over the investors outside of the U.S. So, Philip, what did you want to say? Just to underscore a couple of Gabriel's points, again, this is just a preliminary injunction. The SEC is seeking a permanent injunction. And if if Telegram loses the appeal to the Second Circuit on the preliminary injunction, then they're going to have one of two choices, which is, to come to the table with the SEC and arrive at a settlement with the SEC, which would look very much like Gabriel was saying, which is registering the tokens under the 34 Act, giving investors the required disclosures, et cetera. One aspect of that, which you can see in the settlements that the SEC reached with Paragon, Airfox, and Gladius, is that investors would have to be given the opportunity for the SEC to be happy with the settlement. Investors would have to be given the opportunity to put their tokens back to Telegram. And that's when the rubber will hit the road because that's when we'll learn whether investors still want their grams, whether they have faith and confidence that the Tome blockchain project is as exciting as the promoters suggested it would be. And if and when we reach that point, and the token holders, the gram holders, don't put their tokens back, then Telegram will be vindicated to a a great extent. If they're deluged by investors saying, I want my money back, then that's going to be a vote of no confidence on their project. That's the first road they can go down. The second road they can go down is litigating to the end with the SEC. But here's the downside risk of that. The SEC is empowered to get disgorgement of all ill-gotten gains. That means any money that flows from a violation of the federal securities laws. The only violation that they are, the only charge that they've levied here is sale of unregistered securities. If Telegram loses, every single dollar of the $1.7 billion raised, arguably, is an ill-gotten gain. Wow. That's a tough spot to find oneself with. But as you mentioned, here is another interesting side of this case because Telegram actually has a quite a powerful pool of professional investors who trusted it with their money, including influential U.S. funds like Kleiner Perkins, Ribbit Capital, Draper Dragon, and many other prominent names. And their behavior... What they choose to do in this situation, I think, is another really, really interesting thing. Um, I think I just like to 
take a few minutes to maybe make a little bit of historical excursion of what Telegram business actually is, because it maybe some of um, our listeners could be interested why those funds even even trusted Telegram with such a huge sum. Let's let's see, it's one of the biggest token sales that uh, that has ever taken place. So Telegram's founders, brothers Pavel and Nikolai Durov, used to lead another company, the social network called VK.com or VKontakte, which is basically a Russian version of Facebook. And in 2013, they launched Telegram Messenger, which, uh, uh, and in the meantime, Telegram started having arguments with the Russian law enforcement over censoring the groups in the social network, which, as Durov said, he did not agree to do. And at the same time, he started having disagreements with other shareholders of VK, which included a Russian oligarch, Alisher Osmanov, who is believed to be close to the Russian political elite. So this is a complicated story, deserving more than one podcast episode itself, actually. But long story short, Durov ended up quitting his CEO position at VK and selling his share. So the money he got for selling his share was ultimately the main source of funding for Telegram. And what's interesting here from this story of VK and Telegram, you kind of can see how all these adventures with the Russian state and all these adventures with the shareholders, Durov wanted his new company to be completely autonomous and independent. The company is registered in the British Virgin Islands. It has no shareholders other than Pavel Durov himself. It's been funded from a single source, basically, which is its founder savings, and it never wanted to charge users for anything or to run ads. And this kind of an autonomy-focused, privacy-focused, independence-first ethos sounds pretty attractive, right? But obviously, in a business sense, a company cannot run like this forever. So in early 2018, Telegram raised $1.7 billion to develop a blockchain named Ton, as we mentioned, uh, or Telegram Open Network. And uh, it sold tokens to the venture funds in the U.S., numerous investors in Asia, Russia, Israel, the former Soviet Union nations, and it promised them to deliver tokens called grams. So many investors, in fact, just wanted a chance to buy a piece of Telegram because it was the only way to do it, in fact, because Durov did not want to sell equity by any means. And the demand was great. So at first it was real a success story, but then it turned into a complete legal nightmare. So I wonder what this story can actually uh, show us about the, the, the entire industry. Like, do we already see the implication of that decision? Are we to see them later? Well, I think it's interesting, right? Because it's very similar in some ways to the story of Kick, which is also, you know, defending against an SEC case. Kick was a messaging app. Uh, now it's a little different because Kick already had venture investors, um, and they were, you know, uh, supposedly having problems, you know, raising a new uh, preferred stock financing and so on. It's a, it's a situation where you have a business that already existed that clearly was viewing this as a non-dilutive capital raise. Uh, you know, as part of a bigger business strategy. And, you know, uh, look, free money is nice. Everyone likes free money. But I think what we're seeing now is what many people said at the time, which is that it's a little bit too good to be true. I think about it very high level, right? 
if it were somehow true that these non-dilutive financing schemes were, you know, good for the investors, good for the company, and basically did all the same things as a securities raise, everyone would shift over, you know, to, to using these things because, of course, it's, it's better for the issuer and it's just as good for the investors, if not better, because they get earlier liquidity. Only people it might be bad for is, you know, some unsophisticated secondary buyer, you know, retail buyers. And, and I think that's kind of the point, right? If it does all the same things as a securities raise, then it's, you know, probably would be pretty surprising if the securities laws didn't apply to it. And, you know, so that's what we're seeing here. And that's kind of how I think about it at like the highest, most intuitive level. But if we actually get back to the uh, arguments of uh, Telegram and of the blockchain association, that even though the purchase agreements of Gram were securities, the grants that will be delivered and will be a functional part of this blockchain network will not be securities because people who will be buying them will buy them not to make money, presumably, but to use them on this network because they are an essential part of its work. Well, maybe you have to look at it. I think as Philip said earlier, you have to look at what the circumstances are when the grams are actually released and, and think about why would a reasonable person be buying these if indeed people are buying them in the amounts that people normally buy consumer items and that, that seems to be their intention, then sure, they're consumer goods. But if they're buying them because they think Telegram uh, or potentially others who are sort of affiliated with one another are going to keep improving it. And so if you, you know, buy, buy a lot of them and hold on to them for a long time, you're going to make a really nice profit. Then that, you know, in my opinion, that's going to implicate the securities laws, even though you're now talking about the tokens themselves instead of the SAFT. In my view, that's only the first hurdle. Let's say that Telegram could demonstrate sufficient utility to support the argument that some substantial percentage of purchasers are buying the tokens for use. That doesn't mean that the tokens don't simultaneously represent an interest in the initial capital raise and continue to represent that interest. And so long as the value of the tokens is going to go up and down with the efforts and successes or lack thereof of Telegram, then by and large, you're probably still holding on to a security. Totally agree. Do you gentlemen think we still have a chance to see it proven by reality? I mean, do we have a chance to see the grams issued and released to the public? Well, in a settlement with the SEC, it could take on the structure that Paragon Air Fox or Gladius did. If they don't want to go down that road, maybe it's possible to somehow unwind the U.S. portion of the capital raise and just continue overseas. That seems to me somewhat impractical, but I don't know the nuts and bolts of their operations. Maybe it is possible. But I think that the real implications for this litigation and similarly situated litigations like KIC are for future token <laughs> capital raises and how they're going to be conducted in a compliant way. So it's sort of a lessons learned thing. It's interesting that some people think that this decision is going to have implications for the broader equity market, not just token sales. And I guess uh, Anderson Horowitz recently published their own analysis. And they said, quote, 
because if the SEC interpretation stands, any purchaser of a security issued by a non-public company could be deemed to be an underwriter, end quote. So I do think that that's the, that's the most interesting legal argument that could be made to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. I think they'll lose that argument. And I think Andreessen Horowitz is wrong, uh, but I don't think they're crazy uh, because typically in Regulation D transactions, which Telegram is claiming uh, the sale of SAFs was, the standard market practice is that you just get reps from the investor that says, I'm buying for an investment purpose. I'm not buying to act as an underwriter. And you don't do like a proctological exam on each investor to make sure that that's definitely true empirically. And so that's Andreessen Horowitz's point. They're saying, look, uh, yeah, Telegram didn't do some crazy things to confirm that these guys weren't underwriters, but it's very typical in that context that people rely on reps. However, what I believe Judge Castell is focused on rightly, and this is semi, not completely explicit, but sort of you can see this in, in his opinion, is that these tokens are different from if someone was buying stock. It's prima facie absurd that a venture capital fund would buy these tokens, which have no revenue stream attached to them, no rights whatsoever attached to them, et cetera, and that are styled as ultimately becoming you know, a, a consumer good. It's prima facie absurd that they would buy those as a long-term investment rather than to flip them very quickly in the secondary market, because that's just not the kind of thing venture capital funds do. Venture capital funds don't go out and buy a bunch of consumer goods to resell them at margins on the market. They buy investments, they buy securities. Um, and with a stock, you could see, you know, and in fact, the typical venture capital investment pattern for something like what they hope will become an Uber, you know, is that they're gonna hold that until it IPOs in the normal fashion. But that, that just prima facie, that just wasn't plausible uh, for these tokens. And so therefore, it, it wasn't appropriate for Telegram just to rely on those wraps. Telegram actually knew that all these guys were going to be acting as essentially underwriters. And so this didn't comply with the private placement exemption. So nice argument. And the Blockchain Association makes the same one. And it's amicus brief. Um, I think that's probably the strongest argument they have on appeal. But I don't think it ultimately will be as successful. And I think, you know, Castell saw it the right way. And to take that point a step further, the facts in this case are even worse than that. Telegram structured the offering with what it called its reference price to virtually guarantee upwards of 100% or more profit to the earlier purchasers at the moment that the blockchain was launched, virtually assuring that they were going to dump their tokens into the secondary market unless they had supreme confidence in the upside of Telegram as a long-term investment. That was really interesting. Let's get for a moment um, out of the legal content. Can we just imagine the situation in which two words, popular social networks, Facebook and Telegram actually do issue their tokens and people do transact Libra on Facebook Messenger, people do send grams back and forth on Telegram. And basically, you know, there are two parallel um, economic realities. Can we imagine what the world like that can look like? I think we already live in that reality. It's just not supported by blockchain technology, right? When we log on to our ordinary bank accounts, we're just looking at numbers on the screen. 
and any deposits we would have in our Libra accounts or our Tone accounts would just be numbers on a screen. M-Pesa has been doing this in underbank communities for years now, uh, where they have an alternative currency that's just a number on a screen. And I think the fundamental difference, if and when that happens, when we have a non-national currency of size, of the type you're talking about, it's going to look a lot less like a security and a lot more like some sort of stable coin, as they call them today. Libra and Telegram, you know, are very different, right? Because Libra is proposing like a stable coin. Telegram's proposing, you know, something a lot more like Bitcoin. It's valuable because people value it type of thing. Both are interesting. Personally, I think it's a cool world to imagine. Um, and I, I think it's, it needs to happen, right? Because part of the reason why Kick and Facebook and Telegram have all kind of gone after this, in addition to getting fundraising, is because they're competing with WeChat in China. And so that has in-app currency. Now, that doesn't use blockchain. And I think it's bad that it doesn't use blockchain because that means censorship can happen. And as that app becomes more and more central to an economy and gets in league with the government, people will become dependent upon that. And it would be bad if WeChat sort of controlled this important in-app currency completely. So I think open source is the right way to go for this stuff. I think blockchain is the right way to go. I just think that we need to pin down that point that Director Hinman has talked about of when a token transmutes from being a security into a non-security, we need to improve the crypto securities rails for the period during which it is a security. And we just need a clear way for these things to be launched. But personally, I do think they need to be on blockchain because otherwise... We've seen how Facebook abuses its power and other governments abuse their power when they're in league with technology companies. So, you know, to me, that would be an unfortunate result if, if they all had to be centralized. The only thing I was saying there that would be a bit different is that the cleaner road may be to issue some tokens that are clearly securities to fulfill that role and to issue other tokens that are clearly not securities uh, and to get away from this structure of trying to bend securities into non-securities under imperfect circumstances that are going to continually provoke the regulators to get involved. We can draw cleaner lines. We can do a better job as an industry at this. And I think the only reason we haven't is because we had a couple of years of massive capital raises in the current format, and we're still sorting them out. Again, we're still waiting for, for the regulator to give a clearer guidance of how do you actually handle these things. Do you think the um, safe haven proposal by the commissioner, Hester Pierce, is a way for this? That the networks can have three years to mature and become decentralized enough, and then the tokens can become utilities, not securities? Her proposal is a little different from that. You know, it, it's that you would actually apply none of the securities laws other than anti-fraud to, you know, to the tokens as long as they aspire to become decentralized within three years. And then if they don't successfully do so, I guess at that point, all the rest of the securities laws would start applying again and, and people would have a problem. But you know, essentially what that proposal is, you know, is uh, for all intents and purposes, in my opinion, it's let's just carve out all these tokens out of the securities laws other than if they're fraud, which is illegal anyway. You don't need securities laws to make fraud illegal. So I don't think that's going to get passed in its current form. 
Yeah, I proposed an alternative version of it. Um, I don't think that's going to get passed either. Um, but, you know, something should get passed. And I think what should be focused on is not sort of carte blanche, you know, carving tokens out at an early stage from securities laws, but clarifying that point of when the mutation happens, you know, that the SEC has hinted at, but never really given a, a clear roadmap for, and creating some safe harbor process where if you meet certain metrics like that, the initial development team has given up a certain amount of economic control and network operational control and software development control, which I think can be measured with a reasonable amount of confidence, you know, that, that at that point, uh, the securities laws would stop applying. Um, and, you know, there'd be some process for the SEC confirming that has happened or for people certifying that they believe it's happened and so on. It, to me, that's the right path, but, you know, reasonable minds could differ on the subject. I agree with that point. There is an element of Commissioner Peirce's proposed rule that simply pushes the Howey analysis and other securities analysis down the road for three years. The analysis is still going to have to be undertaken. But I personally am skeptical of any application of the federal securities laws that is technology specific, as opposed to principles based, right? The SEC has always applied the federal securities laws in a technology agnostic way, which is why the Howey test has been an adaptable test for an investment contract for the better part of 80 or 90 years because it's principles-based test. If you're going to separate investors from their money based on certain kinds of promises about your activity and future activities, then that is a security. Uh, it doesn't matter whether or not you are doing that over a blockchain. Or in the past, in the 90s, we saw arguments among the fraudsters out there, and I don't say that in a way to malign the blockchain community, but that security sales over the internet were somehow different. The SEC actually started an office of internet enforcement because pump and dumpers and other offering fraudsters felt like, oh, it doesn't count on the internet. We have this cool new technology. And so the federal securities law shouldn't count in this arena. No, they counted and they counted in just the same way as they do anywhere else. Moving from paper certificates to electronic representations of stock didn't fundamentally change the nature of the underlying investment. So too, should moving from electronic representations of stock held in one kind of database to those held on a blockchain, they shouldn't change the nature of the underlying investment either. So I get very skeptical at proposals that suggest we should have different rules for different technologies, because the idea is to protect the investors and to protect our capital markets and to make sure that our investors and capital markets are sufficiently informed as to the nature of the investments in which they are putting their money. Did I understand what you said, uh, Gabriel? Did I, did I get it correct? We can validate at least one of the arguments Telegram made as valid, that we still need some more clarity on the regulatory side here. Sure, yeah. I don't think it's a good argument for their case. I think it's essentially irrelevant to their case. However, as a matter of strategic thinking and what is good for the industry, yes, I do think we need clarity around that mutation doctrine. And if it's really going to be a thing, then I think there needs to be a safe harbor similar to like a Regulation D or something like that, where there are some numerical metrics and some processes where people could gain reasonable comfort 
that the, the instrument will stop being treated as a security. I don't think that would be um, sort of violating Philips' technology neutral rule, which I fully agree with, because I think under the existing securities laws, we do have this principle that like a general partnership interest, for example, is presumptively a non-security. And the Howey test is based on making a bet on the entrepreneurial efforts of a particular person or group of affiliated persons. So I think there, there should be a point where the Howey test stops applying. It's just not coincidentally always the point where the token is issuable uh, under the SAFT, right? And, and so I think, I think that's the delta between probably my thinking and the SEC's thinking and Philip's thinking and, you know, Telegram's thinking and, and, and the blockchain association's thinking. I agree with what Gabriel just said. I think it is a good argument. Telegram just doesn't have good facts. Okay. And as long as we don't have this new framework and new law, new regulation, anything, does this decision essentially mean that token sales in any form, in a form of ICO, in a form of SAFT, pretty much over for now? Personally, I don't think so. I see a lot of token sales still going on. There are a lot of new networks launching this year, Solana, Ava, a bunch of others. So it's not stopping people. I think they are, and you know, one, one could even argue maybe they're not doing it enough yet, uh, but they're, they're doing it much more consciously and you know, treating the token as a security for at least a period of time and then trying to find that point of sufficient decentralization. My guess is what you'll see is that some of them are seeing that it's sufficiently decentralized too early and are kind of doing astroturfing of that. And that may become like the next wave of litigation and all this. But, you know, it's an incremental process and a model will be arrived at. And we have, let's not forget, we have companies like Blockstack, which have pursued the Regulation A plus path, which personally I think is the right path to go to, to launch it. And then we'll have to see at what point the SEC gives them some comfort that they've reached a point of sufficient decentralization such that the stacks tokens will no longer be treated as securities. That turned out actually to be not enough because now they're contemplating an IPO basically because it turned out that mining of their tokens does not comply with the Reg A+. They need more tokens. They need to register more. And so, you know, they would need to kind of go bigger. But again, that, that could be fine. And, you know, in a couple of years when the thing is more popular, they may be able to deregister. So we'll see how that path plays out. But, you know, everyone's exploring this from different angles. You got people who are kind of asking for forgiveness is better than permission route and continue iterating on that. And we're getting more conservative iterations of that. Kin was a very non-conservative one. Telegram was slightly more conservative. The next ones will be even more conservative than Telegram. And eventually we'll reach an equilibrium, but it's going to take time and more guidance and so on. Philip, do you want to add anything? I, I would say... Um... Separate and apart from any sort of securities token offering, you can obviously do the kind of fundraiser that I described earlier when I was talking about airline miles. Right? If you truly have enthusiasts behind your project, then you can do that typical kind of fundraising. But if you are trying to disguise a security as a non-security, that's not going to succeed. So I think you need to engage counsel. Now, I'm an enforcement and litigation person. Gabriel's probably the lawyer you need, but we have other folks at SNK that do this kind of thing to help you with the securities token offering. And of course, that's going to start with an analysis of just what your token is, whether it is a security or a commodity or something else. And if the token represents a fractionalized interest in some underlying asset, whether that is 
the Tone blockchain project or something else, it's likely a security. Naturally, if it has traditional aspects of a stock or debt or other type of security, like equity-like rights, such as voting or dividend or liquidation rights, or debt-like rights, such as payment of principal or interest or as convertible into stock or debts, you're dealing with a security, right? But once you've determined what kind of token you're dealing with, if you're dealing with a securities token, you then have to look not just at the token, but as we've learned from the Telegram case and others, the manner in which you intend to offer that token and whether that creates some sort of separate investment contract or security. Then you're going to determine the scope and the type of your offering. I think the industry by and large has found that a private placement is an easier and faster process to navigate. And so you're seeing more and more uh, securities token offerings as private placements. And then you're going to want to determine what, if any, secondary market will exist for that token and how the tokens can be traded on that secondary market. Because remember, again, you can turn a non-security into a security quite quickly with the creation of a secondary market if that secondary market allows for capital events that otherwise would not be inherent in the token. Right. So a lot of things to watch actually in the future. I think we all agree. And I'm really glad we took time to unpack this really interesting case. So it seems like an ongoing conversation and let's see what we're going to see next. And thank you so much, gentlemen, for taking time for this talk. It was an exciting trip into the regulatory things that people don't normally think about. So thank you very much. Thank you, Anna, for your great coverage and for having us. And great talking to you, Philip. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for having us. And, and nice talking to you, Gabriel.